Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. UCLA historian Niall Green likes to talk about religious entrepreneurs, religious suppliers, and terrains of exchange, when the rest of us speak of charismatic leaders, theological schisms, and clashes of civilization. What's going on? Well, Niall believes that all too often, the standard vocabulary we unthinkingly use to describe other religions and cultures is not only unhelpfully cliched, but to some extent actually prevents us from developing a deeper understanding of what's really going on. And his solution is to combine a judicious application of a different sort of framework, the so-called model of religious economies, with extensive on-the-ground experiences. I heard this story about you wanting to get the heck out of the UK and taking a train anywhere, but maybe this was an overly romanticized version, so, so why don't I just turn it over to you and you can tell me about your, your beginnings that I think involved a train. In That's right, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a part of, of Britain in, in the English Midlands where there was a, a, a large Indian and Pakistani migrant population when I was growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And my, my original idea was I wanted to get as far as India, you know, but, but I think you're absolutely right that kind of what wrapped in with that was India was just some vague idea in my mind as being as far as one could go, you know, the end of the road or the end of the, the rail lines. And, and I didn't get that far when I was 17. I got as far as, as Istanbul. I got a bit further than that, but, you know, kind of the, the primary destination was Istanbul. And, and uh, even, even though, you know, it, it wasn't India, you know, I had this sort of, you know, great interest in my mid-teens about with, with Hinduism and many of these things, no doubt the legacy of the 1960s, listening to the Beatles at that age or whatever it was. But, but, but certainly, you know, the, those weeks I had in, in, in Turkey, particularly Istanbul, really kind of changed my life at the age of 17. And I was lucky that I'd actually studied Ottoman history at, at, at high school in the, around that time. You studied Ottoman 18. history in high school? Yeah, I had some what phenomenally good... Did you go to? Uh, it, it was one of these old... Tudor grammar schools, you know, Wolverhampton grammar school. So it's one of these places. It was, it was pretty academic, and I had great history teachers. Wow. So, so being there in, in Istanbul, and, and it, you know, it, it brought it to life. You know, as I guess any, if it were a study travel trip, which it wasn't, but you know, it was me and a friend. You know, and, but that really changed my life to the point that when I finished school the year later, the next day I finished my A levels, and got you know back on. I got a flight that time and went straight to Istanbul again and spent that whole summer before college, traveling around Turkey to the eastern edges. I wandered across even the border into Iran illegally, but I'd be meeting all of these smugglers who were doing that every night anyway. Cool. And, and that whole experience really, that kind of really emotional, really, this was, you know, going back to 1990 at a point when the, the war with the PKK was very much on and it right. was, you know, there were these kind of helicopter gunships going out of town every night. And at that age, at 18, it was... I mean, certainly that was romantic, I think. Oh, in, and, you know, and, and, and naive and way. Helicopter and gunships. Was yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and meeting, you know, all of these peoples that, you know, I'd, I'd heard about the Turks and I, you know, knew about the Ottomans, but, you know, that kind of, you know, a couple of months really of kind of immersion into Kurdish matters and, you know, in a way the Kurdish struggle and wandering around those border towns of Iraq, um, which were kind of so central to, you know, the religious history of the Middle East in so many ways. I mean, it's such a sort of a palimpsest Turkey of, 
of every kind of major religion, every minor religion and cult that the, right. the old world has seen. So that really was a life transforming experience. So when I went to college, I actually changed what I was going to do and came back from that and managed to go on and, and, and start studying the Islamic world, really, rather than okay. what I'd originally planned to do. I, I, I want to get back to that, but I'm, um, I want to explore these trips first a little bit, uh, and then this whole business of dealing with drug smugglers and so forth. That seems quite interesting to me. Um, so the first time you go, you're, what, 17? Yeah. And you, right. you, haven't, you haven't written your A-levels yet. So now no. I'm confused. So, so this is the first time. So you're yeah. in between. You, you haven't graduated from high school yet. That's right. And you have a summer off, and you decide yeah. to just go. Yeah. And you go with a friend, and you decided not to go to, uh, to India, despite the... Uh, well, despite some romantic ideal you might have had of India, but you decide deliberately to go to Istanbul, and this is presumably influenced by uh, the Ottoman history that you miraculously had in high school, uh, or, or what? what, what why, why did you decide to go to Istanbul, or did you really want to go to India and you ran out of money or something? It was or pretty what, much what that. I mean, India then, I mean, going back, you know, it's the best part of 25 years. I think India seemed to be, I, I didn't have... I hadn't saved up enough pocket money or for money, you know, it was, it was too far. And, and also I think this is sort of a practical element that, that Istanbul was still on the European rail network and you could get what people used to have there. Oh, your rail the pass. Yeah, something. kind of okay. inter-rail pass. So there were kind of, you know, practical constraints on it, but, you know, it still had enough of a resonance That's to want to go there, not to, I don't know, kind of the Baltic or something, you know, which right. would have been feasible right. as well. <laughs> I'd like to get to the Baltic now, but still. It's so you went with a friend and you stayed there for how, for three, four months? No, 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 no that, that's the first right? time, so yeah, two that's right. I mean, that first trip was really was only a taster, so I only stayed in Turkey for about two weeks and then worked my way across Europe. So it was really that second trip when I was 18, when I, when I you know, kind of went back again, it had, you know, it had captured my imagination. And that was when I was traveling alone for those two months around Turkey. And that was really, you know, kind of a, a huge, you know, kind of turning point in my life. And, you know, I still look back to that point as, as you know, it, it set me on, on a path I still continue to this day. And including, you know, travel. I mean, I still, every year to this day, I'm, I'm, I'm going somewhere different. I mean, this year I was in Myanmar, traveling around there. Last year in Chinese Central Asia. And a year or two before now I was in, you know, traveling Afghanistan. So it's still, it, it's in my blood really, you know, but, right. but certainly you know, why I travel to, through the Muslim world, I think, comes to somewhat coincidences that, you know, I just ended up going to Istanbul that year, not to wherever else it might have been. I see. So, so it was really the second trip, when you were by yourself, that piqued your curiosity about the yeah. Islamic world in, in particular. And, yeah. and, and uh, as you said, the varieties of different experiences, this palimpsest, palimpsest, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce this as well, but it's, a, you know, it's a one thing on top of another. Yeah. Uh, how, how is it again? How do you pronounce it? Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Um, did I miss an S? Palimpsest. Palimpsest. Yeah. Palimpsest. There's another mm -hmm. S before the. Well, okay. I think so. Yeah. yeah maybe I'm I'm right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this this idea of a of of a variety of experiences that are interwoven or or mashed together or somehow uh, integrated in, in in some particular form, that was really brought home to you when you were uh, in Turkey, right? Is that that's fair? That's right. And and certainly I think something that that you know at, at that age when I was you know, immature at so many levels, including intellectually. But what I think was really important about that, it really pressed home to me, very deep into my, you know, kind of mind as well as spirit and flesh, really. The, the importance of kind of real one-to-one -one contact, the importance of being there, the importance of being in the field, if you like. So, you know, even when I began, let's say, you know, my formal studies of Islamic history, you know, kind of a few months after that trip when I went to college, as, you know, as an undergraduate, I was always kind of in, the, in this tension throughout, I think, my intellectual life of, the way things are described in books, 
what, you know, what I'd be studying, you know, the books I'd be reading as an undergraduate rather than writing later. And, and my own experiences, as it were, in the field. And often there was this sort of, you know, kind of intellectual disjuncture. Right. You know, that wasn't even clearly in those terms then, but just this, well, that's not what I saw. And for quite a few years, I think, even to the, into the point of, you know, later on, you know, when I went to do my PhD, after many, many more years of travel, I had quite a few, you know, gap years and missing blank years in my CV being on the road. But, but you know, I, I was still... You know, perhaps not confident enough to say, well, are all those books, can, can, can those be, books be wrong? Can those conceptions be wrong? Particularly, as you said, uh, sort of hinted at, that, that idea that, that you know, there is this one thing called Islam, or maybe these many other layerings or pluralities, the things I'd seen on the road, the kind of the complications, the nitty-gritty of, right. of real life, including, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, if you like, in the language of the humanities, the kind of the plurality and diversity of Islams and Muslim experiences, but also, of course, the tensions and the conflicts, which even when I, you know, I, I, as an undergraduate, through uh, an inspiring undergraduate teacher, I developed an interest in Sufism. But as I went to sort of see that in its reality on the road, you know, I might read the books about the wonderful poetry of Rumi, but it became pretty clear to me, you know, kind of living among and, and as a participant observer among various of these communities, whether in India, Pakistan or Iran or elsewhere, that there are, you know, many of these kind of tensions there over very real world resources, not just you know, doctrinal things, you know, about land holdings, income, um, mm. stipends for, you know, a Sufi master and so on. So, you know, those kind of travels still to this day, you know, they're really, if you like, my kind of empirical base that I want to touch to see, well, you know, what is real? Am I drifting too far into some abstractions, theologically, conceptually, right. methodologically, or whatever right. else? And that seems to be a common theme throughout your work, of course, naturally, consequently, this idea of What's it like on the ground, as you mentioned repeatedly in terrains of exchange, sur le terrain, you know, mm -hmm. you're really looking at what's happening with the real people, the real circumstances, the real varieties of experiences where things can't be separated into religious orientation and, and economic interests and political structure and so forth, the way we often do in abstract language. And then at the time, looking for broader based general categorizations, general explanations of events that have happened as a historian, which of course you are. So there's this tension which seems to be constantly at play between the two, it seems to me. Anyway. That's right. And then in those years, you know, kind of those, my kind of Vandiyar, and as they were, my, my traveling years, which, which really stretched through you're my still, entire... You're still in your traveling years, I'm still, years, I'm still in them, but there's you know, this sort of period really between, you know, kind of 18 and 30, when, you know, each year I'd be on the road between five and nine months, you know, we really, you know, I mean, throughout the PhD, I spent one year linked to the institution, the rest of it, I was, I was, you know, abroad and away. And, and then through those years, it wasn't clear to me that I would even become a historian. You know, I always had my interest in history. But, you know, I, I thought of myself really as being in many ways an anthropologist or an anthropologist with interest in the past, trying to see, you know, what is the long imprint of the past on the present. Um, and I still think of myself in many ways as being, let's say, a a historical anthropologist or something like that. You know, right. I'm interested in trying to apply those that kind of totality of, of, of anthropology that you've, 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 you've hinted at there. That idea that everything is interconnected and can't be you know can't be taken separately. That kind of way of, of anthropologist in the kind of the classical kind of fieldwork model of choose yourself a small village, a, a sort of a terrain, a field that you can master, and see how everything is is, is wrapped up together. Their ideology, belief ritual, right. daily work, marriage, kinship, etc., etc. So in my work as it developed really over the years, it, it's really been an attempt to try to, as it were, you know, kind of real life intellectual lessons of interacting with people, of, of really seeing how things work, of 
perhaps living and staying in a town repeatedly for months at a time or many repeated visits of making relationships with people and observing and seeing how things work in the present and try to understand, if you like, core principles of how social life, human life, of, as what become, became my speciality of religion in the world and religion in the social world, and to try to see, well, what are they, these core principles and, and how they change over time or maybe what kind of principles or, 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 or yeah, I guess principles or, or processes, you know, kind of actually do re- either repeat themselves through time or can be seen happening in different ways over time. Right. But still coming out of that core you know, kind of trying to apply the lessons of the present to the past. Or or might even be misrepresented later on by historians. So I want to talk a little bit about Sufism because um, it seems to me that in in your book, Sufism, A Global History, uh, a central theme is this idea of correcting the the impression that one might have about what Sufism is and, and actually looking at, again, from this perspective of on the ground, historically, what happened on the ground what people uh, who were later called Sufis actually considered themselves, mm. how uh, Islam may or may not have changed deeply according to these categories that later on were looked at as, well, these are just these mystical, weird guys. Mm. And, mm. and the, the historical um, reinterpretation of what these movements actually were by people who came along in the 19th century and the 20th century and, and had their own particular universal historical framework. So I've rambled on for quite a while. But it seems to me... Um, that you are looking at Sufism as, again, uh, a, a window, as it were, or a concrete example of, again, measuring this potential disconnect of what was really going on and what later on became this abstract general sense of things. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, usually let's take you know, kind of a, a, a standard definition of Sufism that people will be perhaps familiar with. Sufism is, Sufism is Islamic mysticism. And, and certainly my own experience as an undergraduate when I was taught by the fellow called Julian Baldick, who was a major scholar of Sufism and who wrote a book called Mystical Islam. It's a very fine book, but in, in line with that standard notion that Sufism is, is mysticism right. and thereby it's this disembodied set of perhaps experiences, how do we touch those, or theological abstract ideas, again, how do we you know, grab hold of those. It's almost like people, people would look at it as sort of the Kabbalah version of, of, yeah. of Islam. I mean, that, that's, that was the sense that I had before I, I looked at yeah, your book. Yeah, that's right. And going back to, you know, as it were, those lessons for me from the road, those empirical lessons of, of, of field work of, of many different kinds, was that when I first went to, let's say, India, I first actually got to India when I was, uh, what, 20. And, and I went to see a Sufi shrine. You know, this is where the Sufis would be. I went to a shrine. And from that first of these shrines, of the many, many shrines I visited, I realized, hang on, this is an entirely different thing to what, you know, whether my own teacher or, you know, many, you know, the majority of other scholars had written about. There was hardly any abstraction here. No one seemed to know these kind of key concepts and terms that apparently the whole shebang was about. This was about, um, at the bluntest level, it was about, you know, the uh, transactions of money in exchange for ritual blessings. It was about land holdings. It was clearly a business. It was also a means of expression of devotion for people who were, let's say, illiterate and certainly not intellectual elites, or maybe not even, there didn't seem to be much of mystical religion going on, very much mysticism as it was developed by the Edwardians. There seems to be this very separate religion from ritualism, uh, you know, kind of a very higher order concept. This was ritualistic religion in perhaps its most extreme, really. So, you know, from there on in, from there on, on onwards, that, that experience in Delhi at the age of 20 made me pushed me onto a track and said, well, I want to understand these shrines and these rituals and these practices of, of saints. And the way I've come to explain it nowadays is that my 
um, let's say, kind of simpler, encapsulated description of Sufism is, this is Catholic Islam. Just in the same way as there was a Catholic Christianity before the, you know, the Reformation of the 16th and 17th century, in the Muslim world before the Reformation that's still ongoing through the latter part of the 19th and the 20th and the 21st century, there was an Islam of saints, of holy men, of great monasteries, if you like, with their land holdings, of miracles attached to the pilgrimages and the saints associated with these shrines and monasteries. These monasteries and their, their holy men, their leaders, their abbots, if you like, were often closely connected with rulers through relationships of patronage and you know, kind of mutual transaction of, of, let's say, miraculous capital for material capital. Um, and that sort of falls apart, or at least is, a, is attacked and undermined through the Reformation of the 19th century onwards in the Muslim world, similarly as in, in the Christian Reformation. But this was mainstream century. before that. This, this was, was this mainstream, that's right. Right through, of course, until really, until, well, in many parts of the world, it is still mainstream today and predominant. I mean, for much of Africa, much of India, Pakistan, much of Southeast Asia, um, and also for surprising amounts of in places when I, you know, I did a lot of traveling in places like Egypt and Yemen, Syria, and many other places, Morocco. And these are still places where the Sufi orders and those Sufi, that, if you like, that Catholic Islam of saints and shrines and pilgrimage is still very much alive today. There are very good reasons why the reformists would have attacked it, just in the same way there are very good, if you like, kind of intellectual, political and economic reasons why Luther, you know, kind of posts his... his um, his, his principles really, as, sure. as, as well. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's not as if, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not, if you like, a, a proponent or, or someone is saying that, you know, that this reformation was a bad thing. No, but I'm you're looking at the evolution describe. of these things. You're looking that's at right. how they change, yeah, right? right. And, and and can, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, one can see in, in many ways the it's, it's the sheer power of Sufism or the, the sheer power, if you like, of that Catholic Islam or that Sufi Islam, as I prefer to call it, which was, as you say, just normative Islam, really, before the... The, the great reformists came, one can see that it's the sheer power and influence of these guys and their institutions that actually triggers the reform and reformation process from the latter part of the 19th century. So, you know, it's, it's not as if, uh, you know, it's actually the, the real power and influence of Sufism rather than these being these guys who retreated into the corners and were, if you like, uh, kind of renouncers of the world. They weren't at all. I mean, these were in many cases the, the, the eminence grise, you know, the kind of the the, the, the voices, be, the, the power so behind Richelieu, the throne, really. yeah, the, the Richelieu of, of their yeah. day, and there were many of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, and right through into the 20th century, when Libya becomes independent from, from Italian rule in the, the mid-20th century, it's a Sufi brotherhood and a Sufi family that become the, the Senussi Sufi brother that rules independent Libya. Still today, many of the MPs of independent Pakistan are these Sufi hmm. land-holding families. And, and we can see this in many, many parts of the world still to this day. So that influence is being pushed back by the reformers, but it's still very much there as part of the, the political and the economic fabric, as well as, if you like, the spiritual, and, 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 and if, if there is such a thing, I don't know if there is, but you know, perhaps let's say the purely religious, as people might want to think, those right. terms. So I don't want to undermine those elements, but again, it's that what we've talked about, that idea of a kind of histoire totale, a, a right. complete history that says, well, one can't understand the one from the other. Often with students, I'll use the analogy of saying, well, we know the, the paintings of Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, and, but we also need to understand 
the, the strength, the, the power of the Catholic Church and the Borgia Popes, and that's part of one package. Sure, he didn't, didn't write this, he, he didn't create this in a vacuum, he didn't paint this in a vacuum or sculpt in a vacuum or anything like that. That's right, it doesn't reduce the beauty of those paintings no. any more than all this, any of this reduces the beauty of Sufi poetry. No. But this is, for me, the tension of the reality of the world sure. and the human condition. One sure. needs to grapple the two together. And it might give you a clearer sense of why Michelangelo might have sculpted or might have painted this as opposed to that and so, and so forth. Absolutely. But, so as you're talking and, and from, um, from sampling some of your work, um, again, there are, there are two themes that I'd like to highlight when it comes to religion. So not looking at religion qua religion, the, the particular doctrines, what's right, what's wrong, and obviously that's not uh, relevant and that's not what we're particularly interested in talking about. But this idea of religion as a dynamical force and religion as a dynamical force within the broader rubric of society and an important essential dynamical force that it changes, that it moves, that it evaluates, that it adapts, that, it, that there may be whatever we talked about, reformations, large periods, but also smaller incremental periods of mm. adaptation and movement and evolution. And this idea of the variety of experiences. Again, there is no one Islam, just as there is no one Christianity and there is no one Judaism and there is no one Hinduism, that if one looks closely, one has one notices an increasing variety of, of doctrines, of experience, of practicality, and so forth. And it seems to me that these two themes are manifested explicitly in this notion of this religious economy that you, that you talk about. So when I first read this, I thought, what on earth is he talking about <laughs> with religious economy? Um, but uh, first of all, is that, is that fair that the religious economy uh, notion or structure or model is deliberately designed in such a way to account for these sorts of things and perhaps a good deal more that I've talked about. And then secondly, what are we talking about? What, what is that exactly? Yeah, so, that, so to answer your first question first, certainly, I mean, what, what I've tried to do with developing, I didn't invent the notion of the religious economy, but I think I'm, I've, I've certainly developed it a lot more and, and I think I'm the first person to really systematically apply it to the study of Islam. And, um, and what I'm trying to do with this model of religious economy is, is to say, well, for me as a social historian and a social scientist, religion belongs and is developed and it has its life as far as we can tell in, in this world. It's, it's, it, it's, uh, religion is developed and exchanged and created and reshaped and reinvented through interactions between different people. So what I'm trying to map is who creates religion and who, if you like, kind of consumes or does religion, or who is, you know, this kind of dynamic between a, a production side, if you like, and a consumption side, to start to use that analytical vocabulary of religious economy. And I think what's really useful and really important about this is it, is it does two things. First of all, it, it makes us realize that, that religion isn't, as it's often, we're often taught to conceive it, as something that Christianity was invented by this fellow called Jesus, or maybe the apostles, and a few significant people later, but it's as it were, once it's formed, right. it's handed down. monolithic thing, right. It's handed down, the language of tradition, it's handed down over the centuries. And of course, this is how religious practitioners always present religion. You know, it's that core truth that was revealed and then handed down, the language of tradition. It, 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 so the, the model of religious economy breaks us away from that by saying, no, religion is being constantly recreated and invented. Tradition is a, a resource, a social resource in the world that can be deployed by different, what I would call, religious entrepreneurs. So tradition, it's not that there's no room for tradition, but it's saying that tradition is always deployed, reinvented, reshaped, suppressed. Mm. It's a tool, in different to ways. It's a, it's a tool, absolutely. So that's, I think, one of the very useful things about religious economy. It breaks us away from the idea that religion just gets 
passively handed down and continues. It's constantly remade at any point in history, sometimes more dynamically than others that change, as we've seen in a period like the Reformation we know about. But at any point in time, I would say, that change is always happening. History is always being remade, if you like, in the present. The second, I think, very important thing that religious economy does, and that's particularly needed with regard to Islam, is that it gives us an analytical vocabulary for understanding plurality, diversity, and moreover, what I see as a process of diversification, and we'll maybe come more to that later, and pluralization. Because, of course, since, I guess, in the West, we're more familiar, we've lived through Christian history and Jewish history in various degrees, we have, you know, that, that richer vocabulary of, of Orthodox Jews, Reformist Jews, and that much richer vocabulary of description. Similarly for Christianity, we all know very well, oh, that there are Baptists and there are Methodists and there are these kinds. We already know all of that variety. The difficulty with Islam is twofold, really. One, that there's a lack of familiarity and, I think, conceptual clarity, that we have an idea of maybe Sunnis and Shiites, and some people might know there's these guys called Sufis, but that's a pretty narrow range for you know, so many you know, upwards of, of, of a billion or more people in the world. And the second problem with that paucity of vocabulary is that since the 19th century, the, the discourse of Islamic reform and Islamic uh, pan-Islamism, Islamic unity, is that Muslims themselves, many Muslim religious actors themselves invested in saying, no, you know, Muslims are one, we are one ummah, we are one global community. So often, as it were, practicing Muslims themselves are actually kind of, you know, invested in obscuring, as it were, that very plural, plurality, and right. as I see it, an increasing pluralization, and if you like, a fragmentation. Of, of Islamic authority, what is going on in the world today. Right. We'll perhaps get to that later. Yeah, I think so. Um, but should you have anything more to say, Phil? As I said before, please feel free to, to add it. Perhaps another aspect is also this lack of uh, rigorous hierarchy, as it were, that you certainly see, you don't see with all religions, but you certainly see it with the Catholic Church, for example, where you have a sense of who exactly is the spokesperson. And of course, you, at various different points in time, one had the caliphate, but then there were struggles over which one was the true caliphate and which one wasn't. And there wasn't nearly as much, I would imagine, I would guess, as a systematic organizational structure that you have in some other religions, which I think allows for perhaps even greater diversity, but at the same time makes it harder for an outsider to say exactly what's going on. Is that fair? Or? Yeah, and it, it, this might be a way that we can start unpacking this idea of religious economy, because the kind of thing you've described is what I would call a monopolistic religious economy, right. where there's one, <laughs> as it were, dominant player in the marketplace. Let's say kind of the Catholic Church through you know, the golden era of Spanish history, a very dominant player in the religious economy linked through with the state supporting it. Um, but, of course, there are many, many different types of religious economy, as there are different types of commercial economy. So, what do I mean by religious economy? Let's, let's really sort of strip back to the beginning. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that the, the, the language of religious economy is applying, as it were, the core concepts of economy and economics to, to understand religious transactions. Now, of course, through 200 or 250, 300 years of the, the, the use of economic theory to explain, economic models to explain commercial transactions. We've kind of got used to, to that idea as if they're somehow real. But of course, capital is an abstraction, of course, sure. ideas like that. An entrepreneur is an abstraction. These aren't necessarily real things. So what I'm trying to do is, is apply a very clear and consistent analytical vocabulary and model that I borrowed the language of economics to apply to the study of religion. But what it's not doing 
is reducing religion purely to economics. Of course. It's a, it's a metaphor, as it were. It's a high-level metaphor that you're able to map on. Yeah, I'd say it's more than a metaphor. I'd, I'd say it's actually you know, more of a kind of a, a, um, a model and analytical vocabulary. But so I'd say, right. you know, I, I believe in it more than a metaphor, if okay. you like. Um, but so, so let's sort of strip back to this most basic point. That, as I say, it, it's this idea of trying to you know, map the holistic pattern of exchanges and interactions in the social world of religion, which I call the marketplace. So we have the social world of religion that we, we call, as I say, a marketplace. A terrain of exchange in the language of the book, but a marketplace. Now, those marketplaces can exist under many, many different conditions. The two, as it were, most extremes of that condition is, if you like, a mono, mon, monopolistic religious marketplace, when the state um, puts all of its resources and power and, and forces uh, following and, and people subscribing to one particular player in the religious marketplace, the Catholic Church, let's say, in this particular periods of history. The other extreme is, if you like, the most liberal type of religious marketplace, when the state completely moves away from being a player in, in, in the market or doesn't sponsor anybody and allows and maybe even enables a kind of pluralization of players and thereby competition within the marketplace. Of course, at no point in history has any of these two extremes absolutely lived through. Just like but, economically. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. you don't have complete economic monopoly of close to it, but you don't yeah. have complete libertarianism on the other side. That's right. Yeah, yeah. so there the, are the, these two models. Now, so, so we have different roles of the state as being a player or, or, or not a participant or some kind of median participant, maybe an um, occasion to regulate the market in the middle. So maybe a managed religious economy that one finds, particularly many, let's say, kind of pluralistic societies where the state might only intervene maybe in terms of a religious riot, maybe, or in terms of modern day, in terms of, let's say, terrorism, and say, oh, this is not religion, this is politics. So there is this sort of range between complete control of the marketplace, complete absence of the state from the marketplace, or the state as a regulator of various degrees. Now, what's going in within the marketplace? I think the core insight of the model of religious economy is that religion is shaped through the interactions and the mutual transactions between the forces of supply and demand. And that's to say when we try to make that more concrete, that's real people, religious suppliers and religious demanders. And that again, when we start to see that kind of interaction between the two, that takes us away from the language of tradition and the way we normally think about religion as being handed down or maybe being just given by the priest or the prophet. We're looking at a dynamic relationship between consumers and providers. So let's look at the consumption side then, the demand side of the marketplace, how that might change the actual thing itself, religion, the products and services that religion provides or religious supplier provides in the market. Here's what let's think of medicine. For much of human history, religious suppliers, religious figures and religion itself has been in the business of, of supplying things that would now think of as being medicine. They would heal the sick in various ways, cure blindness, give kind of, as it were, prophylactic medicines, talismans or whatever to prevent people getting ill. They would pray for the dead. They would maybe even kind of take over various services of dealing and disposing with the dead, as well as, you know, all kinds of other practices to get away with, let's say, any possibilities of sickness and illness. And, sure. and then and counseling on the other side as well. All of those things, that's right. As, as time has developed, as, as medicine has developed, of course, we don't, most people, of course, many people in parts of the world where medical supplies and suppliers, doctors aren't available, would still go to a religious figure. But by and large, nowadays, we don't think of religion as being in the business of, of diagnosing cancer, as he of healing cancer, of preventing the spread of malaria, or any of those things. The outcome of that is that because the demand for what people want their religious 
supplier, their priest, their Sufi master, whatever it is, their saint to provide, because their demands have changed, the actual thing itself, religion has changed. Right. Religious suppliers don't provide that anymore. Neither Christianity nor Islam in many places actually kind of, as it were, do that anymore. They don't pretend to, they don't focus in that direction, and, and they don't train people in that particular regard. That's right, yeah. So the, the thing in itself, the religion has actually, you know, as a concrete sure. thing, changed. Sure. So that's how the demand side of the marketplace is part of this dynamic, one of many examples. When we look at the supply side, I think this is very interesting in the language of religious economy, because it, it, it gives religion more of a dynamic social life. We can look at different kinds of religious suppliers. Some might be, as it were, more conservative suppliers and maybe even from family businesses of suppliers that have been supplying the same old product, the same old religious services, if you like, for centuries in some cases. A Sufi order might be an example. We have in other cases, if you like, the figure of the religious entrepreneur. And these are the guys I'm very interested in in my book. The people who want to enter the market but maybe don't come from a religious family, they don't have any credentials, they're not credentialized by coming from maybe a famous college or madrasa. So how do they get followers in the marketplace? Because they're not already, as it were, born into it or, 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 or certified as being, you know, having a role there. Like the language and economy. They will innovate. They will provide something new. Or they might undermine their competitors. So what we start seeing going on, especially more in religious economies where the state has a smaller role, where the state isn't favoring one player, and one religious firm, as I would call it, one institution, we start to find a pattern of the potential for competition between different religious providers, so supplying to the demand side of the marketplace, so of course reciprocate with, with following, with transactions of perhaps of money, of cash, of donations. Mm -hmm. So of course there's a flow of social power from the followers to the provider, from the demand side to the supply side. And of course, therefore, when there are these motivations, these incentives to be a religious supplier, as a profession, particularly when we see in many parts of the world where there are very, very limited avenues of social mobility, religion is a, is a wonderful kind of career path, a great you know, possibility for social mobility, particularly in much of the Muslim world today when we're looking around, societies that have very limited social mobility. So this, of course, it kind of sets up um, a set of incentives to become a religious supplier, to become a religious entrepreneur, right. but also, of course, it, it creates the preconditions for religious competition. To say the not status quo to, wants to wants to be squashing these guys, presumably. Absolutely. So there is a, two ways of kind of conflict that might simply be theological conflicts of dispute. It might, of course, boil over into sectarian violence that we see increasingly in more and more competitive and unregulated marketplaces where the state will not or even cannot intervene in certain circumstances in the marketplace. And of course, one also sees then, of course, these patterns of innovation. I want to do something new, or alternatively, I want to reach a new body of the marketplace, a new set of religious consumers that have never been reached before. Maybe women, maybe the poor, maybe the illiterate. So communication technologies, a means of, as it were, distribution of product, as in any economy, are absolutely crucial to the functioning of religious economies. And that's why in my work, and in particular in terrains of exchange, looking at this period from 1800 to 1940, this is the period in what my colleague and I, James Galvin, have called in a, in a book of ours that we did together, the age of steam and print. It's the period when steam travel and printing is first accessed by Muslims. Muslims start, don't begin to print really anywhere to about 1820. So these new technologies to move, to distribute, to travel around the world, to spread one's product, and to print in vernacular languages of the Muslim world become great additional tools for religious entrepreneurs. Right. So you see again that the, the 
I was going to say the metaphor, but of course it's stronger than a metaphor being a, being a model, the, the parallels between the economic entrepreneurs that harness technology to do innovative things and break into their marketplace and the religious entrepreneurs who do exactly the same thing. You see that very, very, very similarly to it. That's absolutely right. That's right. And and that's why I think, again, the model is useful because we don't often think of technology and religion. These are different scientists study technology, if you like, or engineers, and then people in the humanities or theologians study religion. But the two absolutely come together really fundamentally. We see that in the period I'm working on in that book, in, as I say, in printing, steam travel, the telegraph to some degree, the photograph becomes a very powerful religious technology, particularly for, as it were, charismatic masters. They want to, as it were, spread their, their personal brand. Sure. Um, but of course, in, in the contemporary period, we see that very much with the rise of, as it were, kind of new technologies and new media, particularly social media. Because again, the point is that religion is produced through interactions in the social world between religious consumers and religious suppliers. And with, of course, the, the spread and the, the, the giving over of power from the mass consumer base to, of course, the much more narrow supply side. So we have a kind of triangulation of power and an access to power. So social media of any kind, whether that's a printing press or whether that's an iPhone, are absolutely crucial to the production of religion and, of course, the production of social power through religion. One of the things that you had alluded to before, but I think is perhaps worth mentioning and certainly struck a chord with me, is this model of a religious economy is quite different for people. It knocks them out of their preconceived mindsets. Mm. So as a result, you're left reimagining the world in a way that you might not have uh, ordinarily. So instead of falling back to the sense of, yes, I know what Islam is, I know what Christianity is, and we've got this structure. Maybe you're a scholar and you've studied these things, or maybe you're a man on the street and you have a certain idea because you're watching CNN or what have you. All of a sudden, you're forced to grapple with a different vocabulary. You're forced to look at things differently. And that, that enables you to develop your understanding in a way which the vocabulary that you've been using hitherto might, might not. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful aspect of this, this model that you have. Good. Well, thank you. I mean, a lot of people, when I wrote this book, Bombay Islam, which is my first sort of foray into, you know, kind of using the language of religious economy in a big way, you know, they'll say, oh, I, I love so much about the book, but the, you know, calling people religious entrepreneurs and so on put me off. And in some ways, I was, I was actually quite, quite pleased That's with that. Point. And I've taken <laughs> that on with, with the second book. And, and I've written there that this whole language of thinking about religious entrepreneurs, the religious supply demand, the religious firm, because as the great sociologist Michael Mann has explained, organization and institutions are key to the production of social power. So the transition from the single entrepreneur to the firm is absolutely key. But of course, this is a vocabulary that, that as you say, puts people off. And in an interrange of exchange, I've, I've said, well, that's right. I want this to... Oh, that was something Damn else it. I forgot to mention to you. Yeah, perhaps just just I'll just, I guess I'll, yeah, perhaps we'll let it ring. <laughs> I think someone already picked it up. Yeah, the yeah. mission had said to me only to unplug the phone. No, 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 that's yeah. fine. So interrange of exchange was the sense. So, um, about religious economy and what you're, the language and... and yep. So, so interrange of exchange, one of the things I actually expressly say is that this whole vocabulary functions as an anti-rhetoric because I want to shake people out of, you know, thinking, oh, this is an imam and this is a Sufi and this is a Muslim and I know what they do. So I want to create this anti-rhetoric that make people start afresh. And that's really, as I see what happens in these sets of social transactions, that, that religion might have come down from the past, but those resources of tradition, what happens with them, how they're deployed, how tradition, religion 
and religion as tradition survives in the world and takes its new shape is always conditioned by the conditions of the marketplace on the one hand, the possibilities, the range of, of as it were, skills of an entrepreneur, and the relationships he can or, or tries to make with a set of consumers. So it's actually, as it were, religion has always made a new at any particular period because, as it were, the hands of the entrepreneur. So again, it's a, it's a way of actually moving beyond this idea that, oh, we know what an imam is and we know what they do. Right. And of course, I think it also creates, as it were, a level playing field when rather than being confused, for, for many readers, I think, who are trying to go that step deeper with the study of Islam, and they've, they've maybe learned what an imam is, and a Shiite and a Sunni, and now there's a Sufi, and there's a Sheikh, and there's all these different terms. But I want to say, well, in a sense, you can forget all of that. All of these people are really just suppliers. That's what's important. Many of them are doing many similar things across what apparently is the division of their names and their sets of, you know, apparently their labels of being Sunni or Shi. And one of the reasons why they're doing the same thing is because they're competing very often in the same market terrain for the same consumer base. And there are two things that a religious supplier can do. He can copy the same product and services of his rivals in the marketplace, rival suppliers, or as I say, he can innovate, or she can innovate, as the case may more rarely be. So again, so this is actually, as it were, a common set of core principles, practices, and ultimately processes that actually going on, that actually that wider confusing vocabulary of Imam, Sufi, Sheikh, etc., actually hide the common set of principles that are dictating the, right. the moves of all players in the marketplace. And not only does it give some aspect of commonality within that particular marketplace, it has a humanizing effect in terms of commonality between people in different marketplaces, which is to say that instead of saying, well, you know, we Christians or we Jews or we Hindus or we this or we that, we understand our structures and what it is and our beliefs, but those guys over there, they're crazy, they're over there. And all of a sudden when you start recognizing that, no, 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 there's only one thing that's happening. We are all subjected to this interpretation, perhaps this language, this model, this structure. They're just, they're just being religious entrepreneurs or religious mm -hmm. firms or what have you in this particular part of the world at this particular part of time. So there's an element of resonance with the broader human condition that I think I want to get back to later in terms of, well, so what? What do we do with this and how do we, how do we interpret it as a society? But it, it does diminish necessarily this otherness that is brought out so often, it seems to me. I think so, absolutely. I mean, what, what I'm trying to find here is core principles of the life of religion in the human world, the social world. So these same principles would apply to to Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, or I don't know, kind of neo-pharaonic religious entrepreneurs, whatever it might be. And I'm are, sure. Are I there many some, of those? I, I, think, I think one of my neighbors here in Los Angeles is, yeah, one of those, no doubt. But so, so the point is, that's right. This isn't a kind of a model of, that is exclusive to Islam. That can be Jewish religious economies, Christian, or what I'm most interested in, and of course, into range of exchange as a work of global history and as the kind of the beginnings of the types of religious interactions that shape our world today and looking about how that came about, is that into the marketplaces I look at, the particular market terrains, the particular regions, if you like, places in plain speech, is that one might have, as it were, a Christian entrepreneur wandering to what has been traditionally for many years a mostly Muslim religious marketplace where most of the, the consumers and the suppliers are Muslim. Or one might have a situation in some of the case studies I look in India where you have um, Muslim or Hindu religious entrepreneurs with a marketplace that is largely either Hindu or Muslim. And what that means then is that there's no, because we're looking at 
as it were, religious entrepreneurs who in many cases will innovate, there's no particular reason, all other things being equal, why they should only, as it were, draw on the tradition of Islam. One finds religious innovators, of course, if there's, as it were, a broader, more cosmopolitan consumer base, they might want to mix some elements of Hinduism and, right. and Islam. Or in many of the cases that I'm looking at, when we have the, the, the very huge impact of Christian missionaries from Britain and the US, predominantly in the 19th century, entering the Muslim world, entering the religious markets of the, of, well, one global world, if you like, entering religious markets where Muslims Muslim suppliers and, and consumers traditionally dominated, Christian missionaries were, had such a huge impact because they were great. For one thing, they were uh, very highly organized and efficient religious firms, the great missionary enterprises with very efficient means of collecting revenue as kind of friendly societies that had these donations of money and pledges, very effective financial techniques, very effective means of distributing themselves and their product through vernacular printing that they were great investors on, and thereby great entrepreneurs, not just in terms of the first printers in many cases in Persian, in Urdu, in Malay, in many, many languages of, of, of Muslim societies. Um, but in, in addition to that, they were great entrepreneurs in the marketplace in reaching out to formerly underserved communities, women and the poor, particularly the urban poor in cities like Bombay, transferring techniques from the marketplaces in like my home city in Birmingham or Manchester, in one of the cases I look in the book, we see a religious entrepreneur, a British missionary, who learned his techniques among the industrial, underserved, religious, religiously underserved working classes of Birmingham in England, and transferred those techniques to the religiously underserved migrants, who working migrants, who came to Bombay. So one, one starts to see then that these more pluralistic religious economies in a kind of a global age from the 19th century to the present, we have Christian, and in this case Christian and Muslim, religious entrepreneurs competing against one another. And what starts to happen then is adaptation. Competition, of course, is going on between them. But do the different religious entrepreneurs adapt and adopt one another's techniques? They try to out-innovate them? And of course, this is one of the case studies I look at in, in one of the chapters in the book, The Beginnings of Muslim Printing. And that comes about through a process in which these new Christian religious firms, the missionaries, entered various terrains of exchange, various Muslim marketplaces from the Caucasus through to India, through to the Malay world and, and, and Persia and many other places, bringing with them vernacular printing in the local languages of, of, of different peoples. Muslim religious entrepreneurs very quickly caught on to that and adapted what had been, as it were, Christian religious technology. So I, I want to get into specific examples and structure of the book in just a moment, but before I do, a few reflections on this idea of global history. Uh, some of this was again alluded to before, but I think it may be worthwhile to highlight it a little bit more. My understanding of your approach is, is twofold, in the sense of there's global history, which means doing things a little different than uh, one's average historical process. So one doesn't look necessarily at just the evolution of a particular political structure or social structure in one place over a certain period of time or even in the broader intellectual historical tradition, look at a particular concept over an even longer period of time and see how it evolves. But rather, one looks um, at space, as it were. One looks at the world and says, OK, we're going to look at what's going on in different places that are associated with these particular concepts that we're talking about um, during this time period, in your case, mid to later 19th century, up to uh, before the Second World War and so forth. right? And so there's a sense of 
of looking at global history as a different process because it's, it's, it's uh, roughly horizontally flat in time. So you're looking at space and you're over a, over, a, over a limited period of time. So that strikes me as a different and is interesting approach from the historical project point of view. Is that, would that be a fair characterization? Of yeah, it? I think so. It's, it's, I think one of the, the, the aims of global history is really to, to detect processes that happen at larger stages through you know, exchange and interaction that are not necessarily encompassing the whole globe, but certainly moving beyond, let's say, nation states and particular regions as, as units of analysis. But I think you're right that there is very much, I think, the, that that kind of spatial dynamic too is very key. And, and with regard to the study of religion, and religion, as it were, studied globally, I think one of the useful things to, to link up what our conversation about religious economy, I think one of the benefits of that is, is that when we look at the, the ways in which Islam and the trajectories of Islamic religious history at a global level or at a local level have been understood, it's often been through this paradigm of Weberian sociology. There has been, if you like, you know, kind of a, a Sufi Islam, and that has moved moved towards more a rational as we progress uh, and become Islam. more secular and so forth. That's right, a kind of that kind of narrative of Weberian sociology of disenchantment and that that follows, and now we have, as it were, more modernist Islam, the reformist Islam of the the latter nineteenth and twentieth century. One of the useful things that I think the model of religious economy does is says, well, okay, we're not looking at a trajectory, and still less at a teleology that we're going to go from Sufism to if you like, kind of disenchanted reformist, Protestant Islam, as it's sometimes called. We're looking at many, many different terrains of exchange, many different marketplaces. And indeed, in one of them, if the you know, interaction of conditions of supply and demand, the choices, the preferences of the consumers, the intellectual and other strategic abilities, the resources of suppliers are such, that one might get that, if you like, Weberian movement towards a disenchanted rationalist. But one might not Protestant as Islam. well. One might not, or one might go in very much the opposite direction. One might move, as it were, if you like, from right. a Weberian Protestant Islam, backwards in Weberian terms, towards a more enchanted Islam. Right. That's what I talked about in, in, in my book, Bombay Islam. Right, from, the, from this idea of the Industrial Revolution and ports of Bombay and the people that were exporting it had this, this notion of this, this, well, more enchanted view of the individual and the cultish individual which seems to go against that. Is that, is that That's right, that one had seemed to have this paradox, it was at the heart of my book, how could it be that what seemed to be the most industrialized and in those terms modern um, city, if you like, in, in Asia in that period, Bombay, the center, you know, the first railroad in Asia, the first of many of these things, gas lamps, etc. How could that become a production and distribution center in the terms of religious economy for as it were, enchanted religiosity of Sufis, of holy men, of miracles, um, of pilgrimages, and quite the opposite from what Weberian sociology, most of the study of Islam really has kind of told us is, what is Islam in the modern period? There was that disjoint, and of course it's demand in the marketplace of the actual nature of the religious consumers in around Bombay and the Indian Ocean that had their preferences. They want, as it were, more personalized, miraculous, religious supplies that could actually serve them in their lives and their needs. Right. So, it, so this brings me to my second point uh, with respect to global history, and that is you're looking at things differently insofar as, to use my words at any rate, this, this, uh, this spatial notion. So this is, uh, you take a time slice. Uh, I have a science background, so mm -hmm. you use these sort of silly words. But anyway, you, you're rather than looking so much on evolution of time, you're looking at what's happening in, in space over, over a smaller period of time or a fixed period of time. Um, and so because you're looking at spatial connections and links, 
there is this global aspect to it. But at the same time, as you've mentioned several times before, and as you've mentioned just now, there is a focus on not only the wider spatial area, there's also a focus on the, the individual communities, this idea of being, getting back to what we said right at the beginning, on the ground, looking at the needs of the people who are right there, um, rather than put in some large theoretical framework, what they have to eat and, and how they interact and what their needs are. And so there is this interplay with global history, or at least your version of the global history of Islam, with the, the broader-based world and these exchanges on the micro level. So you get this interesting combination of micro and, and, and macro. And they're both actually very important to get an understanding of the entire picture. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it certainly goes back to you know, the early part of our conversation when I was talking about how I, as it were, learned my own craft and my own sort of input right. as a historian of really kind of valuing that on-the-ground empirical data. And I think that's a problem I had as I, I think, you know, kind of bit by bit became a global historian, having written, you know, a book on microhistory and much of this kind of historical anthropological kind of take on how history should be written. And much of the way the field, if you like, the, the practice of global history has developed over, let's say, the last 20 years since it really kind of emerged, has been, in, in most cases, a kind of a top-down approach of really, you know, looking really either at very large-scale processes or even models or systems, you know, world systems, as they're sometimes called, a very influential model, that really have little role for, as it were, not just individual life, but I think the key points of kind of choice and decision-making and human agency, you know, kind of humans shaping the world, that I think are, are not just key to, as it were, history with the human face, but actually kind of key to how historical change and different trajectories of history actually happen. Right. As I've written in, in, in The Range of Exchange, I think all global history is micro-history writ large. It's a kind of the, the summing up of many, many of these individual encounters at a kind of a, a composite level. And what I'm trying to grapple with is it were those two ends of the spectrum if we're writing global history. We need to, as it were, have that larger picture of, of interactions and process, religious economy and transactions, religious exchanges in my case. But I think also to actually to be really true to being history and the empirical basis, I think, of history as a social science, that we actually really need to grapple with that nitty-gritty of individuals interacting and the kind of the core cumulative outcomes of those real human interactions. In terms of exchange, you break up these exchanges because one has to have some structure after all. So you break them up into, as I understand it, three basic categories. There is, and we've talked a little bit about some of these uh, already, but there is, there is the first category of, I guess what I would call uh, response as it were. So one has missionaries who come into a particular place one has meeting of these various cultures, and that's necessarily uh, historically linked to imperialism, and it's linked to uh, power structures associated with imperialism. And so how does that affect one particular area when all of a sudden you're bombarded by missionaries or your land is taken over or, or what have you? Um, the second part has to do with these exchanges insofar as there are internal developments, adaptations to various aspects of... Uh, of um, of the religion, such as, we've mentioned Sufism before, and we can talk about the Reformation, I guess, within the, the Christian context. And then lastly, you talk about this, this notion of exporting, going the other way from, from Islam, who you just mentioned before with Bombay and the people who were going from one place to the other. Um, it, to my mind, one of the things which was 
perhaps obvious in retro retrospect, but certainly something I hadn't expected, is in the first category, when we're talking about these missionaries, one talks about the effect that it has on, as it were, the home culture, where the missionaries came from. There, there's really this sense of a two-way exchange. It's mm -hmm. not just that the missionaries go to one particular place and they change the hearts and minds, and uh, maybe in a good way, maybe in a bad way, certainly in some non-trivial way, but it's also what happens to them personally and their cultures that they return to, be it Oxbridge colleges or, or, or what have you, that there is, there is a certain sense of tolerance and, uh, and intellectual development, spiritual development, religious development, different ways of, of looking at the situation that occurs through this medium. So th that struck me as particularly interesting. That's not a question, but I'm going to let you talk because that's what you should do. This is a conversation after all. Yeah, so certainly what, what is at the heart of, the, of that, that method, as I say, that of, of religious economy and altogether and thinking of global history as patterns of exchange and outcomes of exchange, in a sense, that kind of core old social scientific, as it were, method of, of looking at a dialectic, as it were, uh, uh, you know, something happens, the opposite happens, the third thing comes out, of course, the thesis, antithesis and synthesis model. And, and what I see happening, as it were, over the roughly 150 years I deal with in the book, from around 1800 to 1950, is, as you've said, these kind of three stages. I call them, the one stage, one set of chapters is evangelicals, the next is innovators, the third is exporters. And what I see happening through these interactions and adaptations and so on between um, different Muslim religious entrepreneurs, different Christian religious entrepreneurs, different Hindu ones, and figures creating these new syntheses of Hindu Sufism, for example. What I see happening is a large-scale global process of Christian missionaries under the influence and with the ability, as it were, of, of you know, imperial outreach, the British Empire largely, but the British Empire as being a particular kind of empire, distinct, let's say, from the Spanish and Portuguese empires, that for various strategic and political reasons at least expresses freedom of religion and the state's withdrawal as a religious player from any of its domains, any of the markets that it governs. This enables then a plurality of religious players to enter the market, including the Christian missionaries from the United States as well as from, from Britain at the focuses I look at, but also I look at, as it were, German missionaries in the Caucasus and the Russian Empire. And what these Christian religious entrepreneurs bring to many of these Muslim um, societies, these Muslim marketplaces, or the formerly Muslim-dominated marketplaces, is, as I've mentioned, these kind of new techniques of vernacular printing, new techniques of organizing a religious firm as a mission, that very idea of the mission, and it's kind of outreach to new or underserved participants in the marketplace, women, the urban poor, etc. We see then a process then of, of adaptation as local religious entrepreneurs, or new religious entrepreneurs, as it were, um, start to innovate and adapt these same techniques. They start to found their own missions, their own new religious firms based on the mission model, as well as adopting kind of printing and other technologies like photography. It's very interesting when we look at many of the most influential religious firms in the world today that actually emerged in this period. Many of them have those kind of key um, words that they've adopted from, from, as it were, kind of the Christian vocabulary, words like preaching, Tablighi Jama'at, one of the world's largest and most influential Muslim religious firms in the world today, the Tablighi Jama'at, means a preaching society. We have even words like mission, or mission as it becomes in Urdu, adopted into Urdu, straight from the English. Or other words um, come in, for example, da'wat, inviting, but as it were, to give a Muslim spin, a Muslim take on that practice of outreach and, and missionary propagation. So one has then this stage of which first there's the, the impact of 
of new play, Christian players in these marketplaces. There's the second point, which is when Muslims themselves start to innovate and adapt, as it were, to, to react to the new Christian players in the marketplace. And that third stage is export. And that's when I think the book becomes really global history and really tracing what I see as the core moment when Islam truly becomes a global religion through these many different entrepreneurs with their different religious products, as it were. We might talk about the Islamic religions, I think, more helpfully. And that's when the religious entrepreneurs who have adapted to the new market conditions and the new Christian players start to export Islam, export their versions of Islam, their products and services, to entirely new terrains where there was no Muslim presence before. So the two last chapters of the book look at Indian religious entrepreneurs, Muslim religious entrepreneurs moving to Japan and to the United States. And hence to the foundation of the first mosque in Japan and the first mosque in the United States. And what I think is particularly interesting about there is another, as it were, observation that one can see going on around the world today. One can see that very much in the United States, as in Britain, as in many other regions of the world, whether Hong Kong, where I was earlier this year, or Japan, is that the very effective role of Indian religious, Muslim religious firms and religious entrepreneurs in positions of leadership, even when, as it were, the religious communities, the bodies, as it were, the demand side of the market they supply, they are their followers, if you like, are not necessarily of Indian background. And one of the reasons of that, of that I think, is that entanglement of, of global history, religious history, and imperial history, that India, as it were, is the, the, is the, is the place in the, of the British Empire that is most subjected, as it were, to, or might say, missionary onslaught, but certainly to the, the missionary entry into the marketplace much more deeply than any other region of the world. Those interactions are so much more intense. And Indian religious innovations and adaptations and entrepreneurship is so much more honed and skilled by competition with these missionaries that when they move elsewhere overseas, they're extremely skilled in moving into this wider, wider global world. Not least, of course, through their mastery of English, the English language as well, mm. which makes them very effective religious entrepreneurs in the, as it were, the Anglosphere through to this day. It's, it's quite ironic because one, one imagines that uh, those who were promulgating British imperialistic policy never imagined what the effects of such a, such a policy Absolutely, might be. That's right. It's kind of blowback in other terms in a way, really. Yeah, that's right. yeah. It also makes me think, I, I spoke not too long ago, just parenthetically, uh, to David Hollinger, who is writing a book on, uh, on the missionary movement within a different context. Uh, so he specializes, as, as you may very well know, in uh, the split between what he calls ecumenical Protestants and evangelical Protestants, mm -hmm. particularly within the United States, and the, the battles between them and the sense of uh, how the missionary movement was, in fact, uh, during the, the latter part of the 20th century, increasingly part of the evangelical orientation because many people who were uh, of an ecumenical persuasion and in a position of power and authority and influence believed that the missionary movement was too closely assigned with imperialism or too closely identified with imperialism, and as such, they pulled away because they were anti-imperialist by nature and so forth. That's not really terribly relevant. What's, what's interesting is this idea of these exchanges, these ideas of, of these exchanges being um, uh, uh, there was a word I was looking for, but uh, anyway, these exchanges uh, uh, happening, for lack of a better word, um, through missionaries and and the sense of, again, what you talked about just now is blowback in a different way, but 
not only in terms of the effect later on from the society that was receiving these missionaries, but also from the missionaries themselves, also from the individuals themselves who wind up going to one particular place with one mandate, with one idea, with one set of beliefs and principles and so forth, and recognizing that, oh my goodness, um, there are more ways to and heaven and earth ratio, then people do things a little bit differently over here than they might have uh, where we come from. Maybe our particular belief system doesn't always fit with, with their needs. Um, maybe, to use your language, our, uh, our firms can't respond to the needs of the, the, the individuals on the ground, on the, on the demand side, who are demanding something else. And maybe even they have different ways of dealing with these aspects on the supply side or the demand side that could be of relevance to us back in our parishes, back home, or what have you. And so they start taking these messages, or at least aspects of these messages, back to their home area. So you get exchange in so many different ways. Um, and he's looking at it through one particular filter, but it seems to me, uh, he's obviously not looking at it through the filter of Islam, per se, but, but the, the core arguments are, are equally meritorious. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and I do think that, again, one of the helpful aspect of, of the model is that I think any kind of, as it were, expansion model should, it, it's, it, it's, its value, I think, is it is, comes down to how many insights is kind of usability to sort of, you know, kind of supply many more insights about different phenomena. And I think in terms of these kind of exchanges you mentioned just now, one of the useful aspects of religious economy is that it shows that the different outcomes might be, as it were, cosmopolitanism or they might be competition, they might be sectarianism or they might be, as it were, social harmony. It depends, as it were, on the particular agenda, if you like, of the religious entrepreneur and, as it were, the particular preferences in a given market, market as it were, terrain, again. So those core um, exchange between supply and demand. So, for example, in the book, one of the things I look at is the evolution of the Hindu Sufism. But that is predicated, if you like, on a particular environment, a particular socio-political environment, a particular market terrain. So, and I think this is helpful, I think, even today in the world when we try and understand, well, well, how is it? If, if, the, if you like, I think, you know, many, many as it were, strategists are asking this, particularly with regard to places like Pakistan or Afghanistan. If Sufism is so attractive and if it has these claims to being a real Islam, why don't more people follow it? You know, why isn't this, is, you know, why isn't this kind of what seems to be a very, you know, likable, harmonious, pluralistic type of, of Islam? I think there are problems with that too. But still, why doesn't Sufism spread in a particular environment? And again, I think that's why the holistic model is important, because right. it's a question of, you might put in a particular religious entrepreneur, but it's as it were, does he match with the demands in the marketplace, right. the other wider constraints of the marketplace, right. but also, of course, the other competitors within that, who might, of course, apply means that are perhaps violent or, or otherwise, as it were, kind of non-pluralistic and, and cosmopolitan. So one can get these very different outcomes, I think, of those kind of, those interactions, those exchanges. Right, and this idea that, well, why doesn't this, this particular model or this attitude take over is very much part of this old structure of winning hearts and minds. There's one thing which will be successful in all particular circumstances, and if it's not successful, that must mean that we, uh, the, the, the people are of a different persuasion, or, or, or it's just not being promulgated enough, or something like it's this almost sledgehammer type of mentality of saying, of putting things into very few boxes mm -hmm. and saying only these boxes have to necessarily apply. Um, so I'm being perhaps a little bit too agreeable. Let me not, be, not try to be disagreeable, but, um, but ask you some questions about people who might be disagreeable. So um, I can imagine 
that you might have some criticism from this sort of thing from some of your colleagues, um, either your academic colleagues or, um, or other people more generally, the sense of, well, you know, Niall seems to have all sorts of things to say, and yes, he travels around and he seems to know a lot, but all this talk about religious economies and all this talk about global history of Islam and, and, and these new frameworks in different language, that's, that's just going a little bit too silly. He's, 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 he thinks he can rewrite what, what it is that we've been doing for a very, very long time. Um, have you had those sorts of reactions generally? What sorts of reactions have you had to not only what you're doing now, I know the book hasn't, been, uh, hasn't come out yet, but presumably you've done a fair number of talks and so forth about it, and also Bombay Islam, which you mentioned before, uses a lot of the same concepts and vocabulary and all the rest. I think certainly the, I think there have been people who have objected, I think, to what they feel is a, re, a reductive vocabulary that one shouldn't talk about religion, Islam or otherwise, and these kind of economic, this economic language that reduces or fails to capture what religion is. And, and I think that's a fair criticism, except that I never claimed to be, as it were, capturing the isness of religion. As I say very clearly, it's a, if we want to know, as it were, the what it is to be religious, or as it were, that the spiritual dimensions of religion, there are, there are methodologies, particularly phenomenology, where it captures, as it were, the quiddity, the isness of what you know, religion is and what it's like to be, as it were, a Muslim or a Sufi or whatever else. And you're not talking about the truth value of any of this, that, you, nor, right. nor do you pretend to. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really at the level, of, as it were, of social interactions and understanding the social world, so not the hereafter, nor in, indeed in any kind of realm of value judgment. I mean, I think, and I think perhaps that there are also some critics that think, you know, what I'm doing here is, you know, there has been a, a critique, um, not least in a kind of a lengthy article about Bombay Islam, that said I'm really applying the language of neoliberalism to, to Islam as well. That is, if it were, I'm some, um, as it were, kind of, the, you know, the, the so lucky you're from neoliberalism. from the Chicago school somehow. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I think, I think, you know, again, I think the issue with that is, is that I think that was this idea, particularly boiling down with the idea of kind of choice, an individual choice as being, you know, a proponent in that. But I think really, again, when one looks, I think, at the bigger holistic model of what I'm saying, is that choice has its constraints. Choice, the individual consumer's choice in the world of the religious market, is only one factor in the larger outcomes that actually what, what religious firm or entrepreneur succeeds in the marketplace. So, so I think you know, there's a problem with that critique as well, because it's, as I say, kind of choice, rational choice theory, as it were, is only really one part of, as it were, kind of the, you know, the larger set of factors within a marketplace, the set of variables in a marketplace that determine these very wide outcomes. I think with regard to Bombay Islam too, I think there's possibly a sense that, that I was somehow kind of invested in favorizing or trying to push this idea that, that Sufism kind of wins out or this enchanted religiosity wins out. But really, I mean, that was, you know, something that I think was very particular to that marketplace, that Indian Ocean marketplace, which Bombay is a production center managed to dominate in the latter part of the 19th century. And one doesn't see that in other market terrains. And that's something I hope one can see in the new book, that in some cases the Sufis do quite well. In some cases it's very different, as it were. It is more, if you like, kind of stripped down reformist organizations based around mosques with no room for Sufis whatsoever. So again, it's a question of looking at, at different, different terrains and the very different outcomes that come there. And I think one of the larger lessons is, and I think this is where I've been grappling with, with, you know, I think some very major commentators, some major historians, sociologists, anthropologists, and commentators on Islam, is that what, I think at the core what the book is trying to do, the new book, Terrains of Exchange, is, 
is deal with what is this thing called global, global Islam? Is there such a thing? You know, I'm trying to bring together two things. Islam, globalization, how do the two come together? And largely kind of what have been, I think, largely dominant theories have been an idea of religious uniformity, mm-hmm. that there'd be, as it were, more standardization, more Weberian trajectory, or as it were, there will be this more kind of single global Islam, which will have, you know, kind of these characteristics or those characteristics, depending on the character, uh, the characterization of the commentator. What I'm trying to show is no quite the opposite. And I think this is the core lesson, I think, of, of terrains of exchange and the model of religious economy as applied to Islam in the modern period, is that through all these many interactions in many different, more competitive marketplaces, what has happened has been an increasing pluralization of Islam, that many more religious entrepreneurs and many new religious firms have been able to emerge quite successfully in these underregulated religious markets, partly through imperialism, partly through other, the breakdown of, if you like, failed states that have meant the state isn't regulating or dominating many religious terrains, many regions of the world, that we actually have now, I think, at this point in the 21st century, more religion, concretely, more religious firms, more religious services, more religious entrepreneurs, more suppliers, than at any point in history. So we don't have, as it were, a modernization theory that religion gets left out of the world as the world, as it were, progresses towards modernity. But nor do we have, as it were, a monolithic Islam, a globalized Islam. One has absolutely the opposite, a fragmentation and a pluralization of of Islam worldwide. There are many more Islams because there are more firms, entrepreneurs and innovators, as it were, newcomers into the market than ever before. And I think those insights are really important, I think, politically as well. When one looks at a place like Syria and Iraq now, one sees with Islamic State a classic example of a new, very innovative religious firm that is using the resources of tradition, but is crucially using many new religious technologies. Of course, we know that they've been using Twitter and other um, kind of social technologies, media, social media. And of course, the third element is they're serving an underserved religious demand base of young men from various countries of the world who feel that their other religious suppliers, their traditional leaders, right. aren't reaching out to them. So there's the demand right there. There's the demand, there's the innovation, um, and, well, there's the third thing I said. Um, but here may be a criticism, uh, maybe not a criticism, uh, let me back up. This makes me ask perhaps the obvious question, um, which is, well, this is all very well and good as a descriptive way of understanding what has gone on in the past and what is going on now. And I want to ask a little bit more about social relevance and push in that direction. But the obvious question is, well, so what? Um, and so what in two ways, not just so what, who cares? I mean, a lot of people feel that about all sorts of things. But if one, is, if one wants to have a deeper understanding of why one historical process happened rather than another historical process, or if one wants to get a deeper understanding of by that one, what sorts of things are major factors which might lead us to conclude what might happen in the future. Um, It's helpful to have some sort of model with some sort of guidelines of understanding, some descriptive and and perhaps ideally, maybe maybe not tenable, prescriptive policy about what's going to happen. And my sense of, of reading your work is you do a wonderful service in using this new language and in breaking down old, often trite uh, categorizations of descriptions which uh, were far too monolithic than they should have been and might not even have applied at all. 
So these, the, the standard narrative of, well, this arose, and then these people did that for 100 years, and then nothing happened, and then something happened over here. By combining this nature of examining this uh, on a global level, these micro levels of exchange, this idea that all global history is micro history, I think you do a great service in being able to give a much deeper understanding of what happened then and what is happening now. But the question is, it seems to me that there's, there's, a, uh, there's a give and take between, on the one hand, having a model which, is, which can be used to be able to make predictions or, or describe things. Well, there were only two types of human beings. There are the A type and the B type. And a type will always do this and the B type will always do that. And, well, that, that gives you a model of some sort of predictive power, right? And it gives you a description of what's happened before. On the other hand, you have this, well, it turns out there are a whole lot of different types of Islam. And it turns out it really depends. You have to look at this uh, economic uh, framework very, very seriously uh, as a model um, and, and understand the entrepreneurial mentality, understand supply and demand and what these people are doing. Look at it, as you say, more as an anthropologist mm -hmm. to some extent, looking at, at the micro level, being able to understand it. And I just get, well, that's just a big mess. I mean, it's, it's, it, doesn't, it can't give me a framework, I think, in, an, in the normal way that I can write history or talk about what might happen in the future. So do you get that kind of criticism? I haven't, but but I think it's it's probably the people I'm dealing with, and you know, and historians are more <laughs> used to looking backwards, and um, and I think many historians, you know, are very reluctant to say, well, we, we don't give predictions, but but I think I see myself as a historian within the tradition of the social sciences, and I think you know there is clearly you know a tradition within the social sciences of, of creating models that lend an element of predictability, and I do think religious economy does that. I think of. I don't think necessarily the, the core examples in the book do that because they're particular times and places. Sure. But that's why in the, that introductory chapter I try to lay out the model and then you know, the people might extrapolate from that. Because I do think if one understands, you know, as it were, even those kind of core basics of what in a given terrain, a given kind of unit of place one's looking at, who are the religious suppliers, what are the demanders, what are the conditions, overarching conditions of the marketplace, is the state a player, is there no control, a failed state for example, no regulation of the market one can kind of see, you know, kind of, I think there's an element of predictability of what kind of religious services, what kind of suppliers, what kind of firms will flourish in a particular market conditions and what won't. So I think one can really kind of see that one, one adds up the elements, as it were, what's there. One recreates the model of the marketplace. And I think one can, I really do think, I mean, I found that in my own sense of just kind of observing world events with my own model in recent years. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think many of my predictions have been far wrong, to be quite honest, even though that's not you know, my business of what I'm you know, writing down and earning a living by. It's useful to check, though, every so often. Yeah, no, it is. It kind of, it's, it's reassuring, because <laughs> as I say, you know, I, mean, I do have this kind of element of you know, the empirical present world, which I try to sort of you know, develop my models to apply for. After all, history is ongoing. It's, history is the present as much as the past. Um, but the other thing I think that I think is, is, is helpful with the model of religious economy as a way of of understanding for, let's say, ordinary people who are living their lives. Let's take two examples. Well, let's say a non-Muslim college student, perhaps a Jewish or Christian student, who I hope will have Muslim friends, perhaps a range of Muslim friends, I would hope, and they're kind of confused, because one of them says, well, Islam is this, and the other one says, Islam is that, and the other one says, it should be this or that, and the news media is saying other things, perhaps some, you know, rather dreadful things, if one's watching Fox News, but still have some empirical basis, jihad, terrorism. So, you know, what, how does that young person understand what is Islam? What is the real one? You know, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think is it a threat to the world or not? You know, these are, I think very pressing questions for, for young people around the world today, and older people as well. And older people, that's right, absolutely. 
Um, so, and I think in that way, I think thinking about different religious entrepreneurs, different firms, different services, I think gives a much easier way of actually kind of moving beyond because all of the people that say a hypothetical college student is going to meet, all of them think this is the real Islam. Islamic State is saying that via Fox News or whatever. So they're, let's say they're more cosmopolitan or whatever friends at college. Their friend who's veiled at college, their friend who isn't veiled. All are saying this is the, the one true Islam. But that, I think, notion of stepping back analytically and say, okay, these are different religious firms, suppliers and consumers with their different individual needs, their different group needs. I think that actually manages to say, okay, that's why. So again, it's the poverty of a descriptive vocabulary. Right. I think it does that. I think the other example, I gave one example, of course, is the non-Muslim college student, for sake of you know, as an educator. Another example, I think, is, let's say, you know, the young Muslim themselves. Maybe not a college student. Maybe in the area I grew up in England. I'm from a town that not many of us got out. I'm from a town called Tipton. You know, very you know, depressed, working-class, post-industrial town in great decline since the 1970s. I only know of a couple of people who left there. One is me. The others were the two Tipton Taliban who ended up in Guantanamo Bay. Young Muslim students of Pakistani heritage, if I remember correctly. But I think young people like that, young Muslims, I really do think, you know, kind of in a position of not read many books necessarily, not certainly read academic books, and don't have the, the privilege of a college degree in the humanities or in Islamic studies. I would hope that these kind of young people who, young Muslims who are potentially going to fall prey to religious entrepreneurs producing social power from followers, young people, following them, seeking their own agendas, political agendas perhaps, and agendas of their own personal or family, institutional empowerment, I think it really kind of lends an important lesson of what is an entrepreneur, and that actually to empower the consumer, to empower the young individual Muslim, to say, okay, the power lies with me here as the follower, not with the imam, not with the preacher who is saying, you must follow me or you'll go to hell or whatever it is, but actually say, okay, I have a choice here. There are a range of Muslim religious suppliers, there are a range of Muslim religious firms, the power lies with me to choose between the two and to choose, as it were, the Islamic services, the Islam, that actually perhaps has a, a better, more useful role in my life as a human being in society. So I think it really has, you know, I think the model really to does something, I think, to hopefully to empower young Muslims of the kind of guys I grew up with, as I say, in that heavily sort of, uh, you know, kind of immigrant area where I grew up and right. came of age in England. Right. So I know this isn't your area. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about contemporary policy implications of looking at the world with this, with this model, with this framework. Um, because I do think that if people started not just mouthing these words, but actually re representing what these words mean, there is this universality aspect of it. There is this tolerance that necessarily arises. As you're saying, there is this, there is this recognition that there is not the one true Islam any more than there is the one true Christianity or the one true Judaism or, 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 or what have you, the one, two, uh, the one true Hinduism. Um, but you hear that sort of rhetoric not only on Fox News, but you hear it often all over the place. You hear people use the word Islam. You know, we, there's this clash of civilizations model that obviously you're intimately familiar with. And it's not just a rhetorical device it's also a whole framework of the way the world actually is. And this has necessary policy implications in the world in which we find ourselves. So, notwithstanding the fact that you're on the history faculty at UCLA, if all of a sudden you were the Secretary of State, 
or if you were uh, the foreign minister, um, I don't know if you have an American passport, so I don't think you could be Secretary of State without an American passport, but whatever. If you were, to, if you were in that position, um, what sorts of things might you do differently uh, in terms of, at the very least, educating your colleagues or trying to set some sort of general policy so that we could be more aware of the sophisticated nuances that lie behind this approach that you have? Well, I think one of the first things to recognize, if we like, if we come, let's say, more from the, the, the Fox News rather than, let's say, the Obama administration kind of point, is, is that to realize that, you know, that, okay, you know, there are certain religious entrepreneurs, certain organizations that really are promoting a clash of civilizations, you know, from, from the Muslim side. You know, that isn't, I'm not trying to explain away that there is no one doing this. Of course. But I think what is important to realize more generally, as it were, from, let's say, you know, kind of the American right or the British right or the European right side, is that, and I think this is the lesson of global history, and I think the core lesson of my book, that Muslims and the Christian world, or if you like, the kind of the secular world of the rest, there's a whole history, of course, of, of, of Muslim communists and Muslim secularists, which is very important as well. But that sort of only further shows that these worlds have been integrated for at least the past 200 years. That, you know, to talk about a clash of civilizations if they are two such things, that's a rhetoric from the Muslim right, and if you like, of the, the, the Christian or other right in the, in, in the West. But in fact, those... There are no two worlds or two civilizations. They've been deeply integrated, even in religious terms. That's what I'm trying to show here, which I think is, you know, we know about imperialism, we know about economic globalization, but I'm trying to say, even in religious terms, the very vocabulary of religious organization is often borrowed or adapted and reused from, as it were, the organization of Christian missions and other uh, Western Christian religious firms. Sure. Or so, Hindu Sufism. As or Hindu Sufism, that's right. So there's this great kind of integration. There isn't a pure and pristine Islam, even though, of course, many religious entrepreneurs strategically and rhetorically will try to say, that's what I've got, that's why you've got to follow me. I think at the level of, um, let's say, of, of, of policy, I think, again, it becomes uh, you know, very difficult and varies according to different terrains. Let's take two examples. And, you know, I'm, I'm not here, I'm not going to go into, like, judging which one is the better, but, again, kind of commentating on... But I think I can helpfully kind of compare the constraints, if you like, of, of even, let's say, a Secretary of State within their own religious marketplace, qua, you know, country they live in. Let's compare, you know, United States and, let's say, United States, Russia and France. In the United States, of course, one has that kind of core commitment there, kind of constitutionally, that the state is not a player in the religious economy. It has a very limited role to even ask the religious faith of its citizens, let alone to modulate them, to, to prevent them, to constrain them in any way. So I think thereby constitutionally, as well as I think morally, I feel, you know, my sense is in the, the American religious psyche, politically, uh, the political psyche, is that it's much more difficult, I think, in an American case, to regulate the marketplace. Because that is the core thing, in a sense, that would need to be done. You know, if you've got many, many religious players, particularly in an unregulated religious marketplace, such as colonial India, where the British had those same kind of political traditions of, as it were, you know, kind of freedom of religious practice coming out of John Locke and tolerance, of course, in the 17th century. The British inherit that, take that to India, America inherits that too. It's very difficult to regulate a marketplace, particularly, I think, in the, in the U.S., case with that kind of core constitutional kind of commitment that the state doesn't play. So I think there are real constraints there, I think, to legally and openly regulate the religious marketplace and really regulate the number of firms and so on that are practicing there. Let's look at France, more so Russia. These are two states with a much stronger case of the state's role in regulating every element of, if you like, social life, cultural life, and indeed religious life, as we see, of course, with the bans on, on on various forms of hijab in France. Mm. 
So if you like, a French Minister of the Interior has a much more free hand politically and morally, I think, as a Frenchman, French politician, to actually regulate the religious marketplace. And that's exactly what we've seen being done. In the British, in the Russian case, of course, much more closed altogether. One has a you know, very dominant state that has always controlled its religious economy. Apart from that little window that I look at in the book of a period when the Russia's religious economy did become more pluralized, if you like. So in the Russian case, the Russian state, Putin or his, his friends, have a you know, kind of much easier political job and social job of clamping down and controlling religious organizations of any kind, whether terroristic or the most liberal. And of course, that's exactly what they've done. Where I'm from in Britain, I think it's, you know, there has been, I think, much more, if you like, kind of a, that shared Anglo-Saxon model of commitments to religious freedom. And I think this is one of the reasons, and I think one of the real dilemmas, I think, for those like myself who really cherish those traditions of religious freedom, of openness, of plurality, growing up in a neighborhood that was, you know, as Hindu and Sikh and Muslim as it was Christian, pretty much. Um, but I think there are real problems with that, because I think, you know, what we have seen, of course, is that across Europe, many of the, the most vocal um, and the most right-wing and ultimately the most kind of terroristic of religious on Muslim religious entrepreneurs have relocated to, in the last 20 years, relocated to Britain because it was the, the, the most underpleased or underregulated religious economy in possibly the Western world. And that's something I feel strongly about. I mean, not least because early in the early years of my PhD, I was very close to, to being uh, kidnapped and, and killed with a group of terrorists who ultimately traced back their leadership to a few miles away from where I was living in North London. So I feel very strongly about those kind of core whoa, 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 tensions. Whoa, 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 back, back up. What was, do, do you want to talk about that at, um, at all? Or, or? I, I, I don't really, I think, to okay. be honest, people were killed, five people killed, I knew them, and it was, um, yeah. you know, it's, you know, but still, you know, I, I would, you I'm happy to be on camera, so yeah, that, anyway. just to sort of see that, you know, um, it means a lot to me, the stuff. Yeah. Sure, of course. So, so the events I'm talking about was in, uh, in late in 1998, when a number of British tourists were kidnapped and ultimately killed in Yemen. This was traced back ultimately through to the figure Abu Hamza, who was of course recently been, finally been deported to the United States, and the US is willing to try him. So again, this I think is one of those real, you know, for me, my kind of real closest experience of those dilemmas between religious freedoms and entrepreneurship to the level of terrorism, and ultimately to how does one police the religious economy, or at least regulate in a religious economy, the point of protecting freedoms of religious expression, but nonetheless, as it were, kind of preventing the most dangerous, socially dangerous religious entrepreneurs in any marketplace, such as Abu Hamza. There is a sense of the state um, acting or not acting with respect to this religious marketplace uh, for its own citizens. So you talk about the United States, and you talk about France and Russia and the different structures and the separation, the formal separation of church and state here and the implications that that has in terms of, I guess, a, a libertarian uh, religious uh, political structure, I guess. Mm -hmm. if it, um, but, of course, then there's also foreign policy, which is significant in terms of how does the United States react to this particular threat? And is this... Is this actually a threat? I mean, uh, put another way, it's, it's very easy to see a direct application of, um, of your foreign policy if you believe that there is one fundamentalist Islam that is out there um, and, and that has a presence amongst these particular people and that has to be eradicated by whatever particular form. But if you start looking at Islam as a plurality, and yes, there 
there are some extreme versions of, uh, of this that are advocated by these particular people that have to somehow be dealt with. But if you start looking at Islam as a, uh, uh, in, in much broader terms, if there's a sense of humanization of what's actually going on, that I would imagine that not only has ramifications for your foreign policy, but it also has ramifications for how you interact with your own citizens to inform them of this. And that has to do with what the media is portraying and so forth. I mean, the extreme case is the one bad boogeyman who's out to get you or, or the, the ideology that everybody somehow subscribes to that has to be eradicated. It's you're with us or against us or this, this, this sort of mentality. Do you understand where I'm, where I'm going? Yeah. So, so the question is, if, if you were, again, I'm trying to put you on the spot. So you're the Secretary of State. So granted, uh, that with respect to American domestic policy, uh, there is this constitution business that one has to respect and, and all the rest of that. But then there's the question of how should you frame the debate um, with your colleagues, with the media? How would you like the debate framed in terms of um, the United States' role in the world and what, what its goals are and what it is promoting vis-a-vis -vis this broader understanding of religious economies? So, well, I think one issue, I think, that, that again, the, the, the language, the analytical vocabulary the, of religious economy helps us with is, is that real bugbear, I think, that comes up and again, I think, between, let's say, kind of liberals and, and people of the right. And one saw that, I think, recently in one of President Obama's speeches, when, when he's saying that Islamic State, I'm not quoting him verbatim, but sure. did say this is not Islam. All real, true religions promote peace and so on, so this is not Islam. But, of course, the problem is, of course, there's something that the right-wing commentators pick up on, and it's fair enough, that, well, if these Islamic State leaders are saying that it is Islam, then surely they are Muslims, they look like Muslims, they pray like Muslims, they say they're Muslims. Isn't this Islam? And I think, again, this is somewhere where thinking through that, that language of religious economy, I think, helps us to say, well, these are Muslim religious entrepreneurs, and I think these are Muslim, as it were, kind of Muslim providers of, of, of Islam. And that's a different thing of separating them from the mass of ordinary Muslims. It's creating a more complex vocabulary of social differentiation. And I think that that's helpful um, in, in, in that regard there. And not least that one sees that some types of religious entrepreneurs use violence. Many don't. So it's a particular subgroup of religious entrepreneur, the violent religious entrepreneur. There's a certain subgroup of religious firm, the terroristic religious firm. It's again a particular firm that has its particular modes of organization and its services, as it were, strange it seems, that it provides to its consumers and so on, so, and its, its followers. So again, you know, kind of this is a vocabulary that helps us see, well, who these particular, you know, Islamic State or Al-Qaeda, whatever, who they are as religious entrepreneurs and the demand base that they supply, as it were, their followers, and how they are in a larger marketplace, that they're just one particular segment. I think knowing that might well actually kind of lead to policies of maybe isolating them within a given marketplace. Right. Whether, of course, it's the US or British or any outside, outsider's role to regulate outside of, let's say, kind of war and, 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 and violence and you know, legitimate or otherwise, but whether it's the, the role of outsiders to administer religious economies in other domains of the world, I think outside of, if you like, the history of empire, that's very difficult. But I think one way forward, I think, that that can be done, and I think you know, these, uh, these you know, kind of uh, policies are to some degree underway in various places. The British Council, I know, has been in... in the British case has been doing this for many years, has, has been, of course, to, to use kind of, kind of cultural diplomacy and techniques of cultural diplomacy. I think that can be very important to, as it were, countering the propaganda, I think, of, of Islamist organizations, those which are very anti-Western, 
to providing, as it were, a different type of information, a different type of image, I think, of American society and of, indeed, of the West. Because again, it boils down to, I think, that you know, the, the core in the 19th and particularly the 20th and moreover the 21st century, the core tool of the religious firm and entrepreneur, the core um, tool within the marketplace is communication and communication tools. So really what one, you know, so maybe as a Secretary of State, one might be thinking more, if you like, as it were, a kind of a communicational diplomacy rather than, as it were, a diplomacy or communicational foreign policy rather than something based, as it were, you know, kind of more primarily on, as it were, kind of violence and war. Right. And, and so that you could speak, presumably, uh, right to the people, as it were, around the world or, or in different places. Yeah. Um, I want to talk just a little bit, getting close to the end here, so bear with me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the impact that these ideas have had, in your view, within the community of scholars. Um, and by these ideas, I mean not only religious economy per se, but that model more generally, whether or not it applies to religion or whether it applies to some other phenomenon that, that, that people mm -hmm. are actually looking at, as well as this globalized approach that, that you have, uh, this combination of, of looking at things in terms of their, their ramifications throughout uh, many points in time, but also combining that with this on-the-ground, local sense of things. The, these two major themes, are they becoming more prevalent uh, in your field? Is, is this something that people are becoming more receptive to or not? Yeah, well, I'll start with the question of religious economy. I mean, the interesting thing there is that with regard to, of course, I want to make clear, as I hope is, that this isn't only a way of of understanding Islam. It's a way of understanding any religion, still less, I hope, is not a way of undermining Islam. It can be applied to all religions. And indeed, it's actually the history of Christianity and the sociology of Christianity where that model was first developed by the American sociologist Rodney Stark, mm. particularly in the book The Churching of America that explained how America comes to have so many, um, so many, as it were, different churches and such a vibrant and dynamic and competitive religious economy. So I think, you know, across it, as it were, the sociology of religion the model of religious economy has been around for a while. I think it's here to stay. And I would like to think that it will be applied more you know, through the, the, the model of my work, I would hope, into the, the study of other Muslim phenomena further back in the past as into the future in many, as I said, many different types of religious economy. So, so what, what sorts of things? What other phenomena when, when you say? Yeah, other, other types of... I think one can understand early Islamic history, you know, kind of in this way as well, I think. I mean, after all, Rodney Stark writing and rewrote as he sees it, the early history of Christianity and the development of Christianity, the path it took in the first couple of centuries through the model of religious economy. Mm -hmm. I think that could equally be done for understanding the early history of Islam and even the figure of Muhammad himself as a figure in what was already a pluralistic, pluralistic religious marketplace. Maybe even the strategies of choice made by early Muslim religious leaders in terms of, as it were, aspects of borrowing and adaptation. We know that Islamic law was an adaptation partly of Roman provincial law and of elements of Jewish law. There was elements of borrowing within a marketplace of adaptation and borrowing as well as innovation are actually key techniques within a pluralistic religious marketplace. So I think the, the early history of Islam could be rewritten in this way. One could similarly see, I think there are periods of, of Islamic history when one has, for example, the Safavid revolution in early modern Israel, Iran, when the Safavid state over a period of around a century, manages effectively to, to Shiaize Iran, to make Shiism a state religion in Iran in a meaningful way, which has continued a trajectory up to the present day. Iran becoming a persecuting religious state, a persecuting state-dominated religious economy. That has a trajectory going back to around 1500. 
So one can see again kind of quite long-term trajectories here of, 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 as it were, the state's domination of a religious marketplace. The parallel, of course, is in, within Russia as well, that one has, outside of orthodoxy, one has, you know, kind of re relatively few, um, you know, of course, there's smaller groups of Jews largely persecuted over the centuries. One has, you know, kind of a very monopolistic and non-pluralized religious economy. So again, that's not to say that, you know, all Christian religious economies are like that. It's a distinctive Russian case, similar to the Islamic world. And I think that helps us today. One's seeing a very different pattern in, in Iran, where the state dominates religious exchanges and religious entrepreneurship to the case, let's say, neighboring in Iraq, the state structure has collapsed, which has led, you know, a kind of, if you like, kind of an anarchistic religious economy where anybody, as it were, can entre entre you know, become an entrepreneur in ways that normally will be, as it were, regulated, I think, even in the United States. Religious leadership, as it were, when it crosses into the level of violence and crime, but that's not regulated in the conditions of failing states. So I think these kind of insights can be applied, as I say, to very different places and very different times. Are there some people who are concerned, have you encountered some people who are concerned that this sort of language and dialogue and approach will naturally and irrevocably lead to a larger secularization of their beliefs? I know that's not what you're saying. I know you're staying away from that. I know you're not promulgating anything with respect to what is true and what people believe. But one can imagine that if one is a, a fervent Christian or a fervent Hindu or a fervent uh, Muslim or what have you, the notion of regarding the spread of my faith and the varieties of my faith within this framework of economical structures is one step towards abstracting things away that will inevitably lead to a secular perspective. Uh, whether or not that's true, I don't want to argue, but what I'm asking is, um, have you received that sort of commentary from other people? Are there people who actually fear that it would be inappropriate to look at the history of their religion or the orientation of what's actually happening on the ground within this framework for that very reason? I've, I've no doubt that that would be the case, absolutely, and um, I, I think that would among you know, perhaps many believers. But I think I see myself really as, as, as certainly not someone on a secularizing mission, but I do see myself as a as a humanist, albeit working with methods of the social sciences. And what I would like to think there is that I'm not undermining people's faith. I think faith is, can be you know, a blessing and a great help for many elements, uh, for many you know, points in, in, in life. But I would hope that, you know, for, I, I would hope that the, you know, there, there are empowering tools, as I've said, in this methodology for the faithful as well as the faithless. And I think those empowering tools, I think, as a humanist, I would say that people would help them, as it were, choose and select a form of religiosity, a set of obligations, and following, as it were, a leader that actually will serve them better in their human lives and serve their wider societies better as well. So if you like, I would say what this is, as it were, even for the faithful, the possibilities may be a more kind of mindful and reflective type of faith that, you know, has a kind of, you know, takes in mind the broader, is more mindful of the broader ramifications and implications of faith commitments. Great. Future projects? I know you just finished your book, uh, but you probably have some other ideas in mind as to what you would like to do in the future. What, what would that be? There's a, a book I'm, I'm, I'm finishing up writing, um, which is the history of the, the first group of Muslim students who ever came to study in the West. There were five Iranians, um, probably aged about 21, who came to study in England in, in 1815. Their, 1815? 1815. Wow. Their chaperone. Their Mehman Dali was called in person. The chaperone was an Englishman called Captain Darcy. He's Mr. Darcy. 
and they're really at the heart of Jane Austen's world. One of them, Mirza Saleh, left a Persian diary of around 300 pages of the five years they spent in London. And I managed to really recreate that world of what it was like to be a Muslim student from Iran in London in the 1810s, in the Regency period. Um, and that's, again, another kind of micro-historical project. But I want to try to you know, kind of create there, as it were, a longer history for the cosmopolitan London in which I studied. You know, and this is a sort of place that's very sacred to me. And so to bring together, in some ways, my own satisfaction, <laughs> my own student years in London, and as it were, right. a historical project there. But I think that's more of a... I hope, well, I hope Terrain of Exchange is a page turner, but I think this, you know, is certainly written as something more of a, a page turner. So, so you've used the past tense now. So you finished this book already? Yeah, the book's pretty well finished. Yeah, I've got to look for a, a publisher, I guess, now. Yeah. Wow. wow. <laughs> He's a fairly prolific guy. You keep, uh, keep going. Mm, so you finished that. So what, what's on the horizon? Really on the future. Like, <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm trying to avoid that question because I've, <laughs> I've been trying for a number of years to really genuinely clear my desk, which is one of those Sisyphean tasks, but I'm approaching it. So I really wanted just to literally clear the desk and I've got, I'm deliberately making no plans and... Uh, that's know, not an answer. That, yeah. that's, that's not an Come on. You've got to have something that's rattling around in your mind of what you'd like to do. It's, it can be a conjecture, a half yeah. form. There's got to be something there that you think would be cool to do. There's, there's, there's uh, a book on Al-Andalus. I used to live in Spain. I owned a house in Spain uh, opposite a medieval Almoravid Moorish castle. And so the history of Al-Andalus is the place of the meeting of the Islamic world and then and Europe, the Christian world. And this whole afterlife through literature, through Washington Irving, through Byron, through Urdu poets from India who came in the 19th, early 20th century and wrote poems in Urdu about the mosque at Cordoba. This kind of whole legacy of Al-Andalus. I might well write about that. I've been collecting notes for years. So that's a kind of a pet project I've been promising myself to do one of these days. Anything else? Anything I've missed? Anything you'd like to add? Um, let me see. I think we've been. I think we've kind of covered everything. I guess really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean. Yeah. That's right. I mean, there's the global Sufism, global Sufism, global history book. I don't think I name checked that, but I, you can if you put a link maybe or something. Sure. Sure. We'll, we'll put a link. But uh, this is, we're not talking propaganda. I'm talking ideas. Right. Yeah, any right. big idea? <laughs> I'm, I'm all in favor of propaganda. I like propaganda. But, uh, it'll be it'll be the bestseller. It'll be a new best. Global Sufism will come back and storm over Amazon. Dot everything. But uh, don't worry about that. Yeah. But no, nothing. Uh, the wrong ideas. Uh, just a good moment to reflect. No, I guess we didn't sort of cover Japan or, or that, but I think that's fine. I, mean, I think we've given enough examples to give people a headache. Sure. So that was the only Go other check out this Kobe Moss. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, is that good enough? Can you say that? Can you look in the camera? Yeah, if ever you go to Japan and want to see the, the wonderful surviving relic of Islam's great age of globalization in the, the long 19th century through to the 20th, go visit the Kobe Mosque in Kobe, Japan. It's one of the most beautiful, the most unexpected sites in the whole of East Asia. That's great. We don't have, we've never done this cut away and look to the camera before. Anyway, thanks a lot. Now. Yeah, this has been great. So you've been you. really, you know, kind of, you've really been the, the Melvin Bragg I've been looking for. No. <laughs> such a, a well-prepared and, uh, you know, kind of very judicious, but very kind of uh, fleet-footed uh, interviewer that, uh, you know, every question was apt and keeping up with the direction of things. That was really satisfying for me. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Religion, along with separate discussions with David J. Goldberg, David Hollinger, Eleanor Nesbitt, and Mary Rubin. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, 
for those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.